Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear, take it out of the driver's seat so it's not making decisions for you, step more fully into the essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. And also really just get to the bottom of the creative process and give you tips and tools to make it easier, more fun, more enjoyable, and just allow you to even get there. Before we get into the interview today, I have a few announcements for you. So I haven't talked about it on the show a lot, but my new single, Like a Bomb, comes out this Friday, June 26th. You can pre-save it at the link in my bio on both Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso on Instagram. So you'll be the first to know when it does come out. It'll like just appear in your library, which is super nice. And the song is all about setting a boundary in a relationship where the trust has been broken and really like the love is hanging on by a thread. I think it's oddly timely. Of course, I didn't plan for it to come out in the middle of a global pandemic and a incredible social justice movement in our country, but I don't think anything is by accident and it is a completely autobiographical song about a relationship I went through in my life, one of the greatest heartbreaks I've ever had. Spoiler alert. But (laughs) anyway, I really hope you'll check it out because it's an incredible song and I'm really proud of it. That said, I'm also doing a single release show on Friday, same day, Friday the 26th on Instagram and Facebook Live from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. So tune in for that. It's absolutely free. I'm going to be singing Like a Bomb, Road to Glory, Rise, all my other hits. And, you know, I kind of like incorporate it. It's a bit like a podcast concert because I talk in between each one, kind of do a little Unleash Your Inner Creative. And I'm doing another one on Sunday at 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That one will just be on Instagram Live, but definitely tune in for that as well if you can't make the Friday one. Now, before we get into the interview, I want to remind you, last week I said I might try something different this week. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. So I'm releasing an interview today on Wednesday. And then on Friday, I'm going to be releasing a separate creative check-in. So what you're hearing right now is me putting my podcast where my mouth is. Basically, I am unleashing my inner creative, trying new things, taking a risk. And um, as I try these new things out on the show, please be sure to tell me if you love it, if you hate it, or if you feel anything in between about it. I promise to receive the information with loving ears. I'm always trying to make it better for you, the listener, and I hope that you enjoy this new format, and I think it will be kind of helpful, actually, to have the different segments on different days. So without further ado, on to the guest. Amir Levy is an actor, singer, choreographer, dancer, writer, and producer, best known for roles on hit shows such as New Girl, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Fresh Off the Boat, The Middle, Two Broke Girls, and the Emmy Award-winning Amazon original series, Transparent. Amir's also worked at powerhouse theaters such as the Gary Marshall Theater, Atlantic Theater Conservatory, and Center Theater Group, which is like the biggest theater in L.A. I first met Amir acting in my first play in L.A. I wanted to have Amir on the show because, simply put, he has helped me become a braver, truer artist. There's no reason that the only place that I feel free should be on stage. You know, it's time for me to have that freedom in life that I do as a performer. From our conversation, you'll learn how to develop the strength to speak up against injustice, why your creative projects are as important as traditional major life milestones such as weddings, and why others should support them as such, how Amir came to realize he is non-binary, and why he slash she slash they isn't tied to a specific set of pronouns, how mediums like live theater are pivoting during COVID, and the importance of being honest about mental health, especially during the pandemic. Oh, one other thing. This was recorded prior to George Floyd's murder and the subsequent protests to support the Black Lives Matter movement, which is why we do not talk about it. Interestingly enough, we did get into topics that kind of revolve around those same themes, which again, can't be a coincidence. Here is my dear friend, Amir Levy. Okay, Amir, you're such an important person to me, not just because you're my friend, but because you've been there at some really pivotal moments in my life. And I don't even know if you know 
how much you've inspired me. We first met each other when I'd only been in LA like six months or maybe it was nine. I don't remember. It was a baby's time. <laughs> and we did, <laughs> yeah, basically we did a Shakespeare play to gay, to, to, to gay. To we, gay. Did, <laughs> we, we did a gay Shakespeare play uh, called the Merry Wives of Windsor. And you just, the thing that I think most about you when, when I picture you is that you just leave it all on the line. I mean, you put it all out there. When you perform, nothing is left. Nothing is held back. And you really, you freed me. I feel like I do that too. But because I saw you there, I was like, okay, I can even do this more because I, I was younger and I didn't really know any of those people. And like, you just gave me the freedom and permission to do that. So that's that's the kind of performer you are. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show. Wow. I'm very flattered. Thank you. And you're pretty awesome yourself. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And you also really were the impetus for me to do my first live show with a band. And that was a major moment in my life, too. So anyway, long story short, you're a very important and inspirational artist to me. And I am curious to know, like, when did you decide to commit your life to to the arts and to creativity. Do you remember when you first realized, like, this is the thing I'm going to do forever? I mean, I've always been a performer at heart. Like, uh, <laughs> I remember I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. I, I left Cleveland when I was six. But every day when I would get home from kindergarten in Cleveland, my routine would be that I would go on the swing set and just sing. Uh, so I would be singing whatever songs I knew, which obviously at the time weren't that many, but uh, it would be anything from like the Disney greatest hits cassettes to a lot was actually singing from the 1982 movie version of Annie. Yes. I don't know. I think the older I got, the more I realized that this was want, what I wanted to do and that I didn't love anything as much as I loved performing. Were you supported by your family growing up when you wanted that? Yes. I was born into a, into a creative family. And I think, you know, I think obviously they supported more projects more than others. When I got accepted into Sarah Lawrence for dance, my dad was not supportive of that because I don't think he really knew me as a dancer or as a choreographer um, and that that was a major passion in my life and that even though my strength as a dancer wasn't necessarily as much of my strength as an actor, that's why I was excited to go to Sarah Lawrence because I had all this theater training but no real in-depth dance training. And I wanted to make myself as solid a performer as possible, as well-rounded. But my mom has always been 100% super supportive. What would be your advice for somebody who is in a similar situation? Like they've decided to go down this path that maybe their family didn't anticipate or doesn't feel comfortable with. And they have to do it anyway because it's what's on their heart. But like how can they deal with that? uncomfortable feeling of knowing somebody is not supportive of their dream? I think if you don't listen to inspiration, it becomes nagging. And you want to follow that trail of inspiration before it becomes a nagging poking. Follow that trail while it's still hot, because if you if you don't, then then it becomes nagging. And then if you still don't listen to it, it becomes regret. And I feel like I've met many people who chose not to follow what inspired them. And as a result, they've come to regret it later on in life. By then, yeah, sure, they could pursue it then, but they'll never get over the fact that they lost all that time. Like, I played the piano from first to fourth grade, and I, I was pretty good at it. I was really good at memorizing, but I... I don't know. I didn't really find a passion for it. And I, as much as I could have continued playing and continued to get better, I wasn't loving it. And it felt like just another thing that my parents were 
making me do after school. And I think part of me regrets giving up piano because how cool would that be to have that skill now? But another part of me is like, well, you really hated it. (laughs) You really didn't like it. So the issue for me is like, I actually took piano uh, like four times prior to the age of being 22, four different times in my life. And I, I mean, I stuck with it for a while with each teacher, like one person I was with like up to a year. But I think that the way that music is traditionally taught in our country is great for people who want to take a super classical route. But it's not like for people like you and I who like want to learn pop and musical theater songs. Exactly. And they need to have more teachers that are willing to just teach us chords and like how to like have an understanding of melody and use that to our advantage as a singer. Cause if you had had that, you definitely would have stuck with it. Oh, totally. Because classical music doesn't speak to me. I mean, again, I, I, I grew up in a classical music household. My dad is a conductor. So I was forced to go to concerts all the fucking time. But as much as I wanted to like classical music to make myself feel more refined or <laughs> highbrow, I don't know. It just doesn't speak to me. When did you first fall in love with musical theater? Do you remember? I mean, besides Annie. and <laughs> I love that that was your first two because that was mine. I mean, that movie is amazing. I don't understand the hate that it gets. Um, it's everything. That movie has like the top performer, like some of the top performers in musical theater history, Carol Burnett, Tim Curry, Bernadette Peters, and ranking like, come on. Get out of town. Cause I won't, I'm staying here and watching Annie. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, between Annie and Pete's dragon and all those other Disney musicals, I think that's when I first found my love in musical theater. And, and Whenever we went to go to my grandparents' place in Mexico, my grandmother collected laser discs and, you know, eventually, you know, when when that time transitioned into DVDs, that. But my grandmother would always be putting on different musical movies for me. What a special memory. Oh, yeah. So you went to Sarah Lawrence. I had no idea you studied dance. That must have been so interesting. Is that what you got your degree in? They don't call them majors at Sarah Lawrence. They call them concentrations. So even though my concentration at Sarah Lawrence was in dance, I still got a BA in liberal arts because I was still studying psychology and literature and anthropology and all these different very specific courses. And also, when I went to Sarah Lawrence for dance, I still... I think it's a good thing that I got into the dance department there because the dance department was really strong and technical and very strict. Whereas the theater department, I could go in and out of and take the couple of classes that I wanted to take. I mean, I was still doing plays and such while I was at Sarah Lawrence, but in terms of training, I mostly was in the dance department because that's where my training had been sorely lacking until that point. Mm. And then you spent some time in New York and did theater and I think probably some film and TV, but then you decided to move to LA. A lot of people, you know, once they've gotten integrated into a space or a place or a career path, they're afraid to make that switch to something different. How did you get the courage to move all the way across the country when you were already pretty deep into your New York life? Well, I actually didn't do much TV or film in New York and All the theater that I was doing felt like it was on the same level. Like it was hard to, I felt like I was going in circles. It was hard to jump ahead because I, I wasn't from one of those schools, you know, like Juilliard or Tisch, you know, and those people automatically get connections and (laughs) there was no nepotism to help me get into the next step which is unfortunately what a lot of New York theater runs on nepotism and, uh, and what school you graduated from. Um, How do you deal with those snooty people? I can't handle that. And it's something I didn't realize that LA is actually more of a small theater and artist town than New York. Like, yeah, New York has amazing artists, but 
it's been getting more and more expensive. So all those downtown theaters and all those places that made New York special have been disappearing because they can't afford the rent anymore. People can't afford to live there anymore. Unless you're famous, you will never get cast as the lead in a Broadway show. But anyway, the reason I decided to come to LA was I had done two years at the Atlantic Theater Conservatory. And the main reason I went back to school was because, I mean, I wanted more training and I had been some time since I graduated college and I felt the yearning to train again. And I really wanted a a community of peers. And I met a lot of amazing people in my class at the Atlantic, but <laughs> of course, most of them were international. So the moment, you know, the moment we all ended, they all went back to their respective countries. <laughs> so... After I graduated from the Atlantic program, I had gone to Paris with my parents because my dad was working there. And I I said I needed a break from New York. I'd been there and I wanted to see what this Atlantic LA program would be. So my plan was I would do the Atlantic LA program, stay in LA for a few months, and then go back to go back to New York so that I could come with it with more of a fresh a break. but I never ended up going back. Yeah, I mean, those first few months of living in LA were really fucking difficult. It took me a while because I definitely wasn't happy in the Atlantic LA program. I didn't really find peers in my classmates, and so I felt very isolated. Um, And even though I was immediately cast in, like, Within a week of of moving to LA, I was already auditioning for plays and already getting cast and stuff because I can't sit still. So I was finding peers within the theater here. And at the end of the six months, you know, I was like, well, I already live in the situation that made me absolutely miserable. It would be unfair to myself to go through that and then go back to New York when I need to see where all this goes. Plus, I was already having theatrical momentum here it more than I'd had in New York, so it made more sense to stay. Right. So basically, you were unhappy, and you made a, a shift in order to see if that shift would bring you greater happiness. You found that it maybe it wasn't happiness at first, but at least it was bringing you momentum, and so you followed that. Exactly. At least I could see that there were places to go. Whereas in New York, I kept just hitting dead ends. Right. So I do have a question because you are gay. At what point did you come out? Was that when you were younger? It's one of those things where like I always knew my earliest memories, like at the age of like four or something like having crushes on the boys in my class. But I didn't start coming out till probably I was 15. Oh, uh, that's still super young. That's amazing. Especially back then. Like, I know kids now come out when they're like six. But the fact that you had the courage and wherewithal and no- self-knowledge to do that, that really is, that's incredible. How did you get the courage to do that? I had very strong and supportive friendships. And I would tell one friend at a time. That was my that was my plan. That was my method. One friend at a time. You know, after I told my friends, I, I came out to my, to my parents. Well, I came out to my mom and then she told my dad. That's usually how it goes. (laughs) I feel like Johnny did the same thing. My friend Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason I ended up coming out to my entire school was because, so this was senior year. So I had already been out to my friends and the people who it mattered. But senior year, one of the one of my classmates wanted to make a senior quote by Hitler in the yearbook. Oh no! Yeah, and so two actually two of my classmates. So they expelled one of those classmates because he already had a history of trouble. But they kept the other classmate because his parents donate donated a huge chunk of money to that school. So his so his parents had money, so he stayed. And his punishment was that he had to interview two of each minority group of people that he had offended. 
and see why why it had hurt them and then write a paper based on that yeah so i told the school counselor that i'm like you know what he already has two jewish representatives i want to be one of the gay representatives wow um, so I mean, I was shaking the whole time. I was nervous because this is not someone I considered an ally, a friend, anything. No. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to fucking do this. So he interviewed me and uh, and it went well. But one of the things that had pissed me off was that like, kids in my class had started a petition to not expel them because of freedom of speech. And I was like, how dare you? This is not a freedom of speech thing. They're quoting Hitler. You don't fucking quote Hitler in your senior yearbook. <laughs> and what was the quote? The I think it was something, it was like, success is the measure of what's right and wrong. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, what Hitler thought was right and wrong is wrong and wrong. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, but, it's... but like thinking about that quote and then making it, makes it even worse when you see the source. Right. There's a senior trip where our principal liked to teach theory of knowledge, which is like a philosophy class. So apparently something that the seniors did every year was to go on like a two-day retreat to talk about theory of knowledge. So I had just gone to Europe with my parents for another one of my dad's jobs. So right when I got back, I went straight to meet my class at this field trip. and. Then the principal says, and now we're going to talk about this paper that was written by my classmates about, about these things, about his experience. And so the paper is read out loud, and there's, it's pretty much the most general, boring paper ever. It's like, I know that what I did was wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Like there was no, there was no remorse in it. There was no learning. There was no emotional depth to this paper. It was very like by the numbers. What I did was wrong. Blah blah. I feel sorry. Blah blah blah. And people in my class were complimenting him and telling him how brave he was to fess up to his wrongs and to. And finally, I raised my hand and I'm like, you know what? The this paper it's it's offensive because not only is it offensive because of what he said, but it's offensive that my class would want to defend someone under the premise of free speech when it's hate speech, and having to deal with like this kind of hatred every day for being Jewish and gay, I do not feel supported by my class anymore. And wow. Yeah, and so that's how I came out to my class. <laughs> so, I mean, the simple answer, especially in hearing more of your life story, is that you're just brave as fuck. I mean, you really are. I know that you're scared a lot, too, but to me, true bravery is when you feel the fear and you go forth because it's what's the right thing to do for you or for the world. And that's something you consistently do as an artist and a human being. I don't know. I, I don't necessarily consider myself the high moral compass of everything that's right or wrong, but I, I'd like to think that I have some knowledge of right and wrong. I mean, you know what's right and wrong for you. And if you see something that's wrong, there's a lot of people who will, I know people in my own life who see something wrong going on and say nothing. And, you know, there's a beautiful quote by Martin Luther King, and I'm going to screw it up, but basically he says, like, the people that are most offensive and oppressive are those that see the bad things and do nothing. Exactly. And that's really, to me, the mark of a, a good person and a brave person is somebody who sees something wrong happening and uses their voice to speak out. You know, it's actually one of the few things I remember from Jewish day school. It's that there were, God, I don't remember the specific story, but it's like, there was someone who did the outright evil, and then there was, like, someone who didn't say anything. And the one who didn't say anything was punished worse than the one who actually did the outright evil things. Yeah. For those that are afraid, who maybe don't have that natural 
vigor that you have to just put yourself in the way of doing the right thing, even if it brings you personal consequence? What would be your advice for them to step up to the plate and find that bravery in themselves? I think to talk to someone who is brave. If you see something that's wrong and you're too afraid to do something about it yourself, then find someone who isn't or find someone who's just as scared of you so that you're in it together because ignoring it will not make it go away. It may just make it worse. So do you want to stop the bad at the beginning or do you want to let it get out of control so that more people's lives are affected? Yeah. So I want to follow this trail of bravery and of very public announcements in your life. So <laughs> you you were also the first person, I don't know if you know this, who taught me what non-binary was. And you taught that to me when you announced that, I mean, I don't know if you actually use that term, but you announced that on stage, you know, you never felt like you fit into either gender role. Was that the first time you had been public about that when you did that concert and you announced it? I mean, I think that I had said different versions of it along my life. Like I had a solo show for a long time called Male Matriarch. It was about the line of women in my family and, you know, my grandmother to my mother down to myself and where I fit in based on my feeling to be a matriarch, but yet I'm a man. I think there's always been a part of me that has definitely kind of been like, well, where's my path? I feel these female inclinations, but I'm a man, so, but I'm not trans. So what do I do? And I think, I think it wasn't until the term non-binary actually became part of the vernacular where I was like, oh, this fits. This right. is what this means. Because for the longest time, it's like, well, I'm not, am I trans? Like, I don't want to have the surgery, but so does that make me not trans? Like, where's this weird middle in between? Because I'm definitely not a guy guy, but like, does me actively choosing to not have surgery make me not trans? I think the thing that finally made me be like, you know what, it's, I'm tired of wearing clothes that don't really suit me or or getting dressed up in a way that I think would fit into the mold of what I'm expected to be. And I think the things that finally made me be like, you know what, fuck it, were A, that search and finding that definition and having that word free me from those confines. But also, I was doing two shows at once that were kind of bringing out that side of me. Like, so there was, I was doing Comeback, the weekly show at Sacred Fools uh, as part of Serial Killers, which is where you get voted on to make a next episode of a show. And I was playing uh, a show mother. I mean, I was really falling in love with this character and going on her journey. And I felt freer to play her than some of the other roles I'd played. And at the same time as playing that, I was also rehearsing for Wood Boy Dogfish, where I was playing Fox, who uh, who was a completely non-binary character. Like, very sexual, very wearing these amazing clothing and still being able to be vicious and nuanced and all these different things. And I'm like, you know what, between playing Edie in Comeback and playing Fox and in Wood Boy, there's no reason that the only place that I feel free should be on stage. You know, it's time for me to have that freedom in life that I do as a performer. Oh, wow. I mean, there's so many beautiful things you just said, but that last piece, I think, is something that most people who are creative, whether they're creative in the traditional sense, or if they're a scientist that does creative things, or a teacher, you know, a lot of us feel like we can truly be ourselves when we create, but we don't know ways to bring that box of creativity into our regular lives and how to wear it out into the world. And I think it's so beautiful that 
you saw these pieces of these characters you were playing and, and resonated with them and said, well, why do I have to leave that on stage? That's a piece of me that I'm giving, I'm lending to that character, right? Right. I love that that, in, in addition to having terminology, which is such a powerful thing. And, you know, a lot of people say like, what's in a word, but when you don't know what's going on with you, whether it's something with your identity or like if it's a mental illness thing, like I know for me personally, like when I heard the finally like really understood the word anxiety, I was like, Oh, that's what's been going on. You know, it's like, there's, there's a lot of freedom within structure. Um, I think one of the reasons that this pandemic is so terrifying right now is that we don't know what the rules are. Like we don't know, We don't know how long it'll last. We don't know who has it, who doesn't. Everything is so fucking nebulous right now that there's there's no structure to hold on. There's no ground underneath us. Yes, Uh, I I understand people who don't like to be labeled or or whatever. But me personally, I love labels because that gives me something to stand on, and that gives me there's plenty of freedom within that. But I. I don't like flying around with no gravity. Right. And, you know, just because you have a label doesn't mean you have to, like, fit into every little thing that the label dictates. It just gives you kind of a groundwork and a groundedness for what you're going through or some piece of who you are that you could never put your finger on. You know, a lot of people who are non-binary use they and them, which you are cool with, but you also are fine with other pronouns, correct? Correct. I I don't identify with any of the pronouns singularly. None of them really feel to to be perfect to me. I don't think that that pronoun is out there yet. So instead of, I guess, trying to be just one of them, I'm just like, you know what, call me all of them. Because I think all of them together encompass who I am. Whenever I try to just go with one of them, it doesn't feel right. It feels like there's something missing. Yeah. And it makes so much, as your friend, it makes so much sense to me because you are many things. You're a multi, multi, multifaceted human being. And why shouldn't it be the same when it comes to this particular part of you as well? Did you plan to make that announcement on the stage or did it just like feel right and it came out of you? As you know from the times that we've performed together, the, the there's always there's a reason for the different songs that I picked for my concert. You know, I think there's very much a reason that that song "If I Were a Boy" by Beyond spoke to me, um, particularly at that time, was because because of those reasons. So I think I think to talk about it, to talk about that song, and to talk about why it resonates with me it felt important to to share that with the audience so that they were along on the journey with me. If you had to pick one song, I mean, I know there's probably many, but if you had to pick one song that you've either performed or just been a fan of that you would say, like, saved your life in some way, what would it be and why? Oof. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think it's easier for me to bring up artists. Okay, so I think the artists that have resonated with me the most are Madonna, Roxette, and Belinda Carlisle. I think those have been like the three the three main staples throughout my life. I think Madonna because of everything she symbolizes and like her strength and her her passion and her innovativeness and and I mean everything about her. Also a Detroit girl just like you. Hell yeah. (laughs) You know, even if I haven't always connected to some of her music, I mean, she's had how many albums? You're not going to connect with every, every one of them, but even with the music of hers that I've, that I haven't connected to as much, I've still connected with her as a performer and, and what she's doing. So, and then you have Roxette where every single one of their songs, because English wasn't their first language. I'm saying it in the past tense because Marie Fredrickson, uh, who was the lead singer, died at the end of 2019. And so, but the, since English wasn't 
their first language, the their specificity of the way that they would come up with lyrics, it's like some of those lyrics you would not ever come up with in English song, in like English speaking songs that you're like, oh, wow, I get that. That's beautiful. So I think that there's a poetry in their lyrics that always spoke to me and always made me feel like I got what they were singing about. Yeah. And then Belinda Carlisle has just, with her, it's, I think the mood, the mood of the song, there's something very, I don't want to say fantastical. I don't know how to describe it, but it's something very accessible about her music that I don't know. It's like, I, I immediately hear it and I immediately like, understand it. So I think those three artists or They're group booze. of artists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Something else that is so amazing about you is that you are such a supporter of other artists. I've definitely felt that you were at a lot of my initial, especially shows when I was playing out as a musician and it meant so much to me, still does that you were there so much and just supporting me and cheering me on. Why has that been important to you as your journey to your journey as a creative? And how do you encourage other people to do the same? Because it's so important that we see each other's work, you know, I think creativity inspires creativity. You want to see what people's passions are. You know, I think one of the reasons that it hurt that it, it it's personal for me if someone doesn't come to like a show that I'm like really passionate about is because it's almost like this is my version of a wedding or yes, or a meet the boyfriend or here's my child. It's like, I don't have any of those things. I haven't put, (laughs) I'm like, I don't put any of you people through any of those things. Like this is my wedding and it's way cheaper. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> that's what I said before my music video. I'm like, this is my wedding, so I'd really appreciate it if you could support me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I think I also make it a point to not invite people to stuff that I'm not proud of. You know, it's like, if if I'm in something that I do not want you to see, I will not hide that. Uh, and I'll be very specific with why I wouldn't want someone to see something. I'll be like, hey, yeah, the the cast is talented, but the show is a big old pile of shit that the director gave up on, you know, because I I don't want to turn people off from coming to see stuff that I actually am super proud of. I think it's offensive to me when people put stuff out there that they haven't actually worked on. When you see something that's sloppy or purely lazy or stuff that could have easily been fixed. I think it's offensive to me because I'm like, that's taking away from stuff that's more deserving of people's time and artistic reserve. And since we live in a, in a country that doesn't support the arts, every time you put on a piece of shit, you're discouraging audiences from going to something that could actually change their life and could positively influence them. Do you think when people put on shows that aren't good or are even bad, they know it? Cause like how, how did they not know it was that bad? You know? I mean, I definitely think that I think that some people lack the objective view to be like, Haha, <laughs> my inside jokes are going to be accessible to everybody. <laughs> I think that some people definitely don't see it. I think some people aren't aware of the fact that what they're putting up on stage is one large masturbatory, ejaculatory, like, <laughs> like a big cum shot to the audience. <laughs> I would be okay with that from time to time, but like. I know, but, right? At this point, I'll take at it. At this point, yeah. <laughs> Human connection sounds great. Um, no. <laughs> but sometimes it's like beyond and it's just like so, there's just so little self-awareness to the content that's being put out. It's like, I'm actually curious sometimes. It's it's also encouraging to me though. I had a, this great guy on the podcast. You would love this episode. I'll send it to you. Where he talked about how when he was trying to make it as a filmmaker, 
he didn't go see great films. He used to see the worst shit on earth because it made him feel like, well, if these people can do it and they're getting funding, then I can definitely do it. And so in that way, it is encouraging. But in another way, I'm like, how did you not know? How were you so out of touch that you made something that was this bad? And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I love a lot of things that are not, you know, are not great by great standards. Like, I love the movie Cats. I still is it need a, to see it. Is, is it a great movie? Not at all. But I don't know. I went into that movie and I was smiling from beginning to end. And I went along with the journey. You know, I love the movie Snakes on a Plane. Is Snakes on a Plane a great movie? That movie does everything it's supposed to do. I think it's all about, like, does the thing achieve what it's supposed to achieve? Like, if you're if you're going to put on, like, a show that you know is stupid and fun, make sure that you fucking hit all those things. But if you're putting on a show that's stupid and fun and it's sloppy, then you're not going to hit the stupid and fun elements. Like, know what track you're on and make sure that you hit all the marks, all the beats in that track. I love things that are in on the joke, but it's like it, what I think you were getting at and what I was getting at are when you go to see something and it. And it's just like out of touch and you don't know what world it's in. And it didn't seem like I don't want the audience to know a joke that I don't know is the creator. Correct. Correct. You know, like you you want the audience and the creators to be laughing at the same thing. Ex so ex exactly. I think oftentimes the reason something is bad is because the show doesn't know what it is. Right. Because for the most part, it's not just one person putting on a show. There's the artistic directors. There are the producers. There's the dramaturg, hopefully. Um, there's a whole team for of For those people. that don't know, explain what a dramaturg is. Okay, so a dramaturg is someone who's supposed to be with the script from the beginning to say, hey, this doesn't match timeline-wise. Or, hey, here's the history of this time period that you are talking about someone who's pretty much asking questions along the way to make sure that a script or a or any kind of piece is as solid as possible and consistent you're, if you're doing a, a a period piece you're you're doing all the correct things in the script based on that time period so pretty much someone just there fact checking you or keeping track along the way and so what you're saying is like basically it's like a group effort to make sure everything is in the same world Exactly. Exactly. Yep. At what point did people stop asking the questions? Mm. You know, if something is about to fail and you know it's about to fail before it opens, why are you still allowing it to open? That's something good to think about even just in like creating your own projects is like really try even if you're doing it alone, which makes it so much harder, but trying really hard to like zoom out and see objectively and really ask yourself like if I wasn't me, how would I receive this product? Exactly. And why if it's something that you know is terrible, why would you risk subjecting your audience and losing that audience in the future mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. And, and how it's so much better to take more time with something or potentially, potentially not even release something than to release something that tarnishes the art or your name. Exactly. Because once, once you lose respect from someone, it's hard to get it back. Mm -hmm. Once you put your name on something that is terrible, it's hard to get, people's trust back did you ever have that happen in your theater career have like have you ever been in something that you were afraid tarnished your reputation I have been in a number of shitty shows <laughs> but again I I always make it clear a I don't invite people to come see that show b if they hear about it I, I give them all the warnings in advance because I don't want them to hold my word as something that will in, invite them to everyone, everything I'm in. Looking back on those shitty shows, as you put it, how did they make you stronger as a performer? You can't always choose what you're in. I think 
even if you're in a shitty show, you still need to go out there and put it all out on that stage because there are definitely still going to be audience members there that somehow heard about the show and somehow are there to see it. And you don't want to, you don't want to make them, you don't want to make it bad for them or worse for them because I mean, they're already seeing a bad product. So you don't want to make it even worse. So you still have to find it within you to still commit to the job that you are committed to. You have to find that thing. Because you're still in that job. You didn't quit. So you're still in it with the rest of those people. Even if you're with people you don't respect, you still need to finish out what you committed to and make sure that even if you are in something that is terrible, you need to make sure that you're not the terrible one in it. Ooh, put that in a quote card, honey buns. (laughs) I love it. So basically, suck it up, buttercup. Be awesome. Do what you do. And you're going to make it as good as you can for the consumer because they didn't sign up for this bullshit. Exactly. You have to find the thing. You have to find the thing about the show that makes it work for you. You have to commit 100%. Because, again, you were not always going to be in things we like. I mean, we definitely won't be because, you know, sometimes it's a paycheck. Sometimes it's like a favor. But you have to find that thing that it's like, okay, I've committed to this amount of time on this thing. I need to make it work. I need to make sure that at least I'm doing my job. Something else I love about you, and it's very on track with everything we've talked about, is how honest you've been about how much you've struggled during quarantine and during this pandemic. So I wonder if you could share some of the things you've been going through and then any coping mechanisms, especially creative ones that you've used that have worked for you during this time, like channeling it into your art or whatnot. It's really lonely. I'm worried that... You know, I may never be hugged by another human being again, or, you know, I think about sex a lot. It's like all of a sudden I'm remembering all the different lovers I've had from my ex-boyfriend to random flings and being like, "Uh, how should I text the ex-boyfriend I haven't spoken to in like years (laughs) just to be like, Hey, do you miss me? <laughs> Even though obviously we I know the answer to that, but it's like I don't know, it's like all this like desperation for human contact and like if I get covid, am I going to die without ever having had the great love of my life? Or if I've already had the great love of my life, then really, that's it. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm scared that like, you know, so far the deaths that have happened have been two degrees away from me. So, I mean, that's still really fucking close to home. Like who of my people are not going to survive this? Am I going to survive this? And will we be able to say goodbye to each other? Like what, there's just so much fear and unknown that I don't know. I get annoyed with all this whole, all this whole silver lining and, and now is time to regroup and, and, and find yourself and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, it's not like, yeah, you can. Sure. You can, you can, you can fucking work hard to to find some meditation calm amongst all this fear. Um, but don't fucking deny that we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. And yeah, I, I think those things, if you're going to, because I definitely have been in that camp for myself. I'm not pushing it on anyone else. But like, if you're going to have those kind of thoughts and feelings like the silver linings feelings you also have to acknowledge that this is so royally fucked up at the same time yeah you know I, like they can coexist yeah no i get really angry i've been getting really angry at the at that meme going around being like if you didn't pick up a new skill or if you didn't do this or if you didn't do this then it was clearly not that you didn't lack the time it's that you lack the discipline 
Oh, gosh. Yeah, I've seen that going around. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, some days it's hard to get out of bed because it's so I think frightening. Whatever anyone is doing to get by right now is great. Exactly. As long exactly. as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's great. Exactly. It's like, it's like this isn't a time, this isn't a paid vacation. Um, <laughs> landlords are still charging rent, which is fucking ridiculous to me because it's like, how do you expect us to pay the rent when most of our incomes are out the fucking window? I think there's a daily fear, um, and I think near the top of it all is that I really, I really miss human contact. I really miss touch, all of it, all the, all the elements of touch. And I guess what I'm doing to stay creative is, so a solo show was, was written for me, Nathan C. Jones' A Love Story. Love Story, because there's a question mark at the end. And, you know, we had talked about premiering it and how, how are we going to premiere this show? Uh, and we came up with this idea that like, well, Nathan C. Jones is in his apartment for the whole show. Why don't we do a world premiere musical from my apartment? <gasps> I just got chills. So my so this is through the blank theater and my director daniel henning and the producer of the blank brie pavey like have dropped off equipment for me to use you know with masks like so i have this fancy webcam i'm borrowing and props this amazing sound and film guy who does all the we the people photography david haverty lent me all his mics I had some wireless mics that the blank gave, but apparently you need an interface or whatever. <laughs> I'm losing, I'm learning all this stuff. We're figuring out because I'm being directed via Zoom, but we're not going to do it via Zoom because Zoom has too many technological issues. So what better way to do this world premiere than this way? And I think a lot of the elements in this musical will actually speak to a lot of the people. I think there are actually, there are a lot of things going on in the show that I think people will resonate with right now. What do you think the future of theater is for like the next year or two? Do you think a lot of it will be going toward doing it like this remotely? I mean, it kind of has to. I think until a vaccine or a cure is in place, people are going to be afraid to congregate. I think it doesn't make sense to wait until we can be in a traditional theater space like people people need theater people need to create people need to to write and act and everything and if we wait until we have the perfect theater space then a not only is that taking away a lot of creativity and a lot of outlets for for people but it's also extremely elitist as fuck i did a i did a 24 hour play last night and one of the actors was saying last night that that was the first time that her parents had ever gotten a chance to see her perform because it's not like, like they can come to Los Angeles to see her. I think that is a silver lining though. Like obviously this is all shitty and there's terrible things going on and God, would we love to be in front of a live audience? Absolutely. Of course. But the fact that you're getting to reach more people because of this new form of doing theater that's pretty cool. It is very cool. It is very cool. And I think one of the wonderful things about theater is its ability to change and its ability to adapt to to the times. I think that rather than wait for what was to come back, I think we need to focus on what is and like and making the technological platforms that we have at our disposal better like zoom has been amazing and wonderful but of course it still has some hiccups that could get better like figuring out how to have more than one person talking at a time figuring out how to do music at the same time you know like there's definitely a lot of elements that still have their glitches and could still be better but i think right now it's a wonderful way to communicate i i seem to be in like a couple of readings or plays or performances a week and interacting with new actors that I may not have met before from across the country. And I think 
as much as I miss being in the same physical space as them and being able to touch people, I think that these outlets are a way for us to continue to to create and work and and also keep keep us sane. Artists need the platform. It's not like we can it's not like taking the time off till that venue comes around won't have ramifications on our mental health. Mm-hmm. No, it's a necessity. It's you have to adapt in order to stay alive, uh, both from a literal perspective right now, but also if you are a true creative, which I actually I believe most people are in some way or another. If you don't find ways to do that and to fully be yourself and express yourself, then at least a a really big important piece of you is going to die, and you can't let that happen because then life really isn't worth living. And so we need to we need to be creative so that we have, I mean, for me, it it brings the meaning to my life. Exactly. Me too. And theater has been around since the beginning of time. Like, like theater has existed without buildings, without money, without all these things. So we can't allow it to die now in this new (laughs) restriction, in this new restriction, adversity, villain, yeah, um, we we need to continue to create and find ways to to continue to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And you've also got We the People going on. You've shifted that online as well, too, right? Yes, yes, we have. We started about three years ago, and the way it works is that we put out a prompt from the preamble, uh, a set of guidelines, and then we usually pick a different nonprofit to raise money. For and we originally had a show scheduled for March, and you know when all the restrictions came and everything got shut down, the first thing that happened was my partner Kimberly. She put out a slam bake challenge, so she put out a set of guidelines, and people responded with different slam poetry, and that's been wonderful and beautiful, you know. And then once that got going, more and more people started approaching being like, well, what about doing the rest of We the People online? Like, what about continuing with that? Now we've gotten all the submissions in for our June show, so we'll start reading through them probably in the, over the next couple of weeks and and deciding what we'll what we'll put on. But I mean I think people obviously still have things to say and people still you know, one of the guidelines is that it has to be a new piece. So the fact that we put out these guidelines and we got all these submissions means that people still have the inkling to create and they want to be involved. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a powerful show. I mean, I actually feel so honored because I got to be, I think, in the last live one you did prior to this. You did. You did. You were in the very last live We the People show. (laughs) Yeah. At least for now. So that, that was exciting to me, too, because it brought me back to theater, which... I've really missed and you're inspiring me now, Amir, because I'm like, well, maybe I can do a online theater show. Part uh, of the totally issue is not having time. So yeah, you've inspired me. Okay. This is my, my final little question for you here. I believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child and a big part of like living our most fulfilled creative life is honoring that little self because a lot of times it had wisdom that we lose along the way. And so I'm wondering if you and your child self, whatever age you picture your child self, were standing in the same room, what would they say to you and why? Hmm. I keep on imagining my my inner child as being five or six, you know, back in the days where I had my Mowgli haircut. I think he's just telling me to get back on that swing set and keep singing. Hmm. And what would you say to him and why? I think I would tell him to never stop even when people walked up to the swing set and he got embarrassed. <laughs> I would tell him to just keep keep singing, find new material. Find know. new material. <laughs> <laughs> Although Annie is amazing, I want you to know, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. No, Annie, Annie is amazing. I think just uh, add some variety. To the repertoire. So so it's not just (laughs) the one soundtrack. 
<laughs> I love that. Amir, I love you so much. You I are such you an too. amazing artist and human. And thanks for being my friend and such an inspiration to me and so many. Well, thank you. You're an inspiration to many. Mm, I love you. I love you too. Thank you for listening and thank you to my guest, Amir Levy. You can follow Amir at the Amir Levy on Instagram and at Lunified Mags, that's L-U-N-I-F-I-E-D-M-A-G-G-S on Twitter. Check out Amir's amazing musical theater show, Nathan C. Jones, on the Blank Theater's YouTube page or just type in Nathan C. Jones into YouTube. It was recently featured in the LA Times. Huge deal. It's fantastic. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. Connect with the show and me on socials at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative. And that's at You Are Inner Creative on Twitter. Be sure to leave the show a rating and review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and follow it on Spotify. Also, if you love the show, tell a friend about it or take a screenshot of yourself listening. Post it to your Instagram and I will repost it. My wish for you this week is that you're as courageous as a mirror in standing up for yourself and others in the face of injustice. Also, I just stumbled on the word courageous right before this. I said courageous. I think we need to make that a word. It's called being courageous in your creativity. I also wish for you this week that you are courageous. The world needs a lot more of that right now. So be a courageous person out there. I believe in you. I love you. I will talk with you on Friday. Exciting for a creative check-in. All right. I love you.